Good morning. You know, regardless of what political party you may affiliate yourself with, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, whatever it might be, I think all of us in this room would agree that one of the most difficult jobs in the world is the job of being the President of the United States of America, right? It's probably one of the most difficult things because on any given day, the President is doing all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things on his plate. Right? On any given day, he's hiring staff, he's overseeing armed forces, he's creating national policy, he's revising foreign policy, he's meeting with the press, he's meeting with international leaders, he's passing bills, he's editing bills, he's rejecting bills, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. I mean, his plate is absolutely full. There's all sorts of things that he is responsible for on any given day. But what makes the president's job all the more difficult than just the responsibilities that he has on any given day is the fact that everything that he does, right, everything that he does is constantly being evaluated or scrutinized or applauded or, or criticized by the rest of the world, right, everything. I mean, to the point where we've decided to make our scrutiny of the president a scientific thing, right? Because you see, since the 1930s, we've officially been surveying random people in, in America, U.S. citizens, to ask them, how do you think the president is doing in his job, right? We're all familiar with it. It's called the presidential approval rating, right? And so every single day, numerous organizations and agencies randomly poll American citizens to ask them, how do you think the president is doing in their job, in his job? And so in any given day, the, the presidential uh, approval rating changes, right? So one day it'll be 53%, and the next day it's 43%. It's just constantly going up and down based on who you're asking and what their opinion is. And that I imagine also that the president, right, probably becomes aware of his approval rating on any given day as well. I imagine that maybe after a long day, he gets back into bed and, and he turns on the television and he turns onto the news and the approval rating pops up on the screen and he sees that America is 43% uh, happy with him on this day, right? Could you imagine what it feels like to work that sort of job? Could you imagine working at a job where not only do you have one of the most difficult jobs in the world, but you also come back home and you're constantly being told how the people think you're doing in your, in your job? I mean, it would be like if I went home today, right? This evening, I went home and I logged onto my computer and I was able to see an approval rating from you guys as to how you think I'm doing as your pastor. So I went home and I, and I logged onto the internet and something popped up on the screen and said something like, 44% of you approved of my sermon today, right? Or that, or 56% of you were bored to death by what you heard today, right? Could you imagine what that would be like? Or if tomorrow, if you went into work tomorrow, and at the end of the day, when you logged out for the day or you punched out for the day, that a approval rating popped up on the screen in front of you, that it said something like, 55% of your job was done well today, or that there's a 40% chance that you're going to be replaced tomorrow, right? What would that be like to work a job like that? It would be crazy to constantly hear whether or not people approve of you. Or imagine if your relationships were like that, right? 
Like when you went home and, and were lying in the bed today that you found a, a card on the nightstand right next to you and it was an approval rating from your family, right? It says something like, uh, your wife was 70% pleased with you today in what you did. Or that your, family, or your kids are 55% happy with you being their dad, right? What would that be like? What would that be like to live in a world where not only are you doing work, even hard work, but you're constantly being rated and evaluated to figure out how well you're doing. I think it would be a crazy way to live, right? It would be an exhausting way to live. It would probably be a depressing way to live because every single day, it feels like this endless cycle of doing and doing and doing, hoping that the people who see what you're doing are happy with what you do, right? It would be a horrific way to live, a horrible way to live. But here's the thing. I think this is the way that some of us actually do live, right? This is sort of the way that some of us do live, especially when it comes to your relationship with God. I think that some of us uh, imagine that God is looking down at us, right? And that he's sort of just monitoring our activity on any given day, kind of looking and watching to see on any given day. And he's trying to evaluate what he thinks about you on that particular day. Like even this morning, right? I imagine that some of us are sitting here this morning and either you're feeling good about the way that God feels about you or you're feeling horrible about the way that God feels about you. Like if you had a good week this week, for example, right? Maybe you had a good week because you spent time reading the scriptures a handful of times this week or maybe you spent time praying or maybe you gave away some money to the poor, and so you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you feel like, you know what? Your approval rating's pretty high, right? Maybe God is fairly uh, pleased with you this morning. But maybe there's some of us here this morning that are sitting here feeling like this has been a tough week. This has been a tough week because there is this particular sin that I constantly struggle with, and it keeps popping up all the time. And this week was a, a hard week when it comes to that particular sin. Or... Maybe you know that you were just being a jerk to your friend or to your spouse for absolutely no reason, right? That you were just being a jerk and you know what you were doing is wrong, uh, but you kept doing it. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling like your approval rating is pretty low, that maybe God is fed up with you. You see, if we were to be honest, I think some of us live like this every single day. On any given day, you and God are BFFs, or he can't stand you, right? And it's all based on your performance. It's all based on how well you did on that particular day. You see, if anything that I'm saying sounds anything like your relationship with God, I think that the scripture that we're about to hear this morning is actually talking specifically to you. But I think that God is saying, listen, if this sounds anything like your relationship with God, that this would be a horrible way for you to live. It would be a horrible way for you to live. Why? Actually, a man named Paul in the Bible was one of the, the apostles of Jesus. Uh, tells us why. He explains to us why. Because he says, listen, if your relationship is based on, your relationship with God is based on you trying to do whatever you can to be good enough before him, you might as well just quit right now. You might as well just give up right now. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says this. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is Paul saying here? Well, before we take a look at the verse, maybe it might be helpful for us to, to define what we mean by the word justified or justification. You see, the word justification in the Bible is a legal term, okay? And what it's referring to is, is referring to your position before God, your standing before God, right? How your position before God really is. And what the Bible says is that way from the beginning, right from the beginning, it, it, the truth is that we're not in good standing before God, right? It says actually that from day one, they use all sorts of words to describe what our relationship with God looks like. And, and it uses words like enemies to God. The scripture says that we are at enmity with God. We are enemies to him. It says words like we're sinners, right? That we have not done the things that we should do and that we don't do the things that he calls us to do. It says that we're guilty before him, that we're condemned before him, that we have offended him. To summarize, it says that from day one, that we are not in good standing before God. And so to be justified would mean to have all of those things that have just described us, for have, to have all of those things to be made right, right? To go from having a horrible standing before God to now having a good standing. To go from being enemies to God to now being children of God, or to go from being guilty to innocent or condemned to righteous. To be justified is basically to have a new standing before God or to be approved by God. And so in light of that, in light of that definition, what is Paul saying here in this verse? He's saying, listen, if your game plan, right, if your game plan in terms of your relationship with God in order to find approval before God, to have good standing before God, is for you to try as hard as you possibly can to obey all of God's laws or to do as many good things as you possibly can so that he would approve of you, if that's your game plan, then you might as well give up right now. You might as well just quit right now. There's no, worth, there's no use in you trying to do that. Why? Because he says, because God has never, he has never justified anyone or approved of anyone ever before because they work hard enough or because they were good enough. It's impossible. And you won't be the first, right? You won't be the first one he does that for. It's impossible. In fact, he says, the more you try to do good things before God and to impress him by the things that you do, he says, instead, what you end up doing is you realize just how holy God is and what his standard is actually like. And at the same time, you start realizing just how sinful you are and how much you're actually unable to meet the standard that he has placed before you. And so Paul's saying, listen, if this is your game plan, if your hope is to try to do enough good things so that God would approve of you, then you might as well quit right now. And so what we're saying this morning is this. Is this if this is how your relationship with God looks like, then the question that you should be immediately asking yourselves is this, right? If no amount of work that I do, or if I can't obey enough in order for me to be found justified before God, or to be found approved by him, then what's my hope? What's my hope? What must I do to stand justified before God? You see, I think the answer to that question is actually the beautiful, the, the awesome, the God-glorifying 
answer that we find in the gospel. You see, the word gospel means good news. That in the midst of this difficult question, there's actually good news. And it's this Christian gospel says something different, something to us that answers this hard question that we ask. And what the gospel tells us is this. You see, unlike every other religion in the world, unlike every other system in the world, unlike every other uh, relationship in the world, you see, God's approval of you isn't based on what you do. Instead, it's based on you believing in what God has done. Let me say that again. You see, God's approval of you isn't based on what you do. Instead, it's based on you believing in what God has done. You see, trusting in God's work, not your work, is the basis for you being able to found justified before him. It's the basis of you being able to be found approved before him. And so this is the question we want to ask, right? If it's found in believing in what God has done for you, if your justification is found in believing in what God has done for you, then the question that we need to ask is, what has God done for you? What has God done for you? What has Jesus done for you so that you can stand justified before him? And so that's what we want to explore this morning. That's what we want to take a look at. And we're asking God that he would help us in that. So let's pray. Ask God that he would open our eyes to consider and to remember and to believe what it is that he has done for us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful for this morning that you gather us. We don't gather purposelessly. We gather with a purpose. And the purpose is to be able to hear from you. We want to hear from you. We want to, to know you. We want to learn from you. We want to be able to submit to you. And we're grateful, God, that you don't just uh, send us out here uh, uh, hoping that we'll sort of grope and find you in some form. But instead, you have revealed yourself to us through your word. You have made yourself known to us through your word. And so as we look to your word this morning, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you show us who you really are? And would you explain to us what our lives could be and should be and what you have created it to be? God, even as we sit here this morning, maybe there's tension that we feel. God, that some of us have lived lives where we're constantly trying to gain approval from you based on what we do. We're grateful, God, that you don't just leave us in attention or desperation, but you give us good news. I pray, my Lord, that you would indeed tell us what that good news is this morning. And that if we've never heard it before, that we would come to believe that good news. If we've heard it before, if we've believed it before, help us to believe it again this morning. You are able to do all these things. You are able to accomplish better things than I even know how to ask. And so would you respond to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're actually going to be just taking a look at two verses. It's found in Romans chapter 4. It's the passage that Dennis read to us, but we're going to just kind of zoom in into just two verses. We're going to look at verses 24 and 25. Let me read it to you again. It says this. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for us for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so we're going to be doing things a little bit backwards today. We're actually going to be taking a look first at verse 25. 
Because in verse 25, it, it tells us, it explains to us what Jesus has done for our justification. And then after we take a look at, uh, at verse 25, we're going to go back to verse 24 and say, if these things are true, if this is what Jesus has done, and if we believe this, how should it change the way that we live our lives? So we're going to look at verse 25 first, and then we're going to go back to verse 24. So let's start with the first half of verse 25. Let me read it again. It says, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. And so what's the first thing that Jesus has done so that we can stand justified before him? It says that he was delivered up. He was delivered up to death for our trespasses. If I were to put that in the most simplest of terms, I think what we're trying to say here is that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Now listen, if you grew up in a church context, right? Maybe you grew up in a context where uh, your family was Christian, and so you kind of grew up hearing these things. Maybe you've heard this thing, that statement, that Jesus died for our sins in our place. You've heard that statement a thousand times before, right? Maybe it's come from your lips a thousand times before. And there is somehow a possibility that we have heard it so much, and it has become so familiar to us, that somehow maybe it doesn't move us in the way that we once were moved by it, right? Maybe it doesn't stir in our hearts an affection that it once did when you first heard it, or maybe even years ago when you were believing it in a different way, right? And so what we want to do this morning, what I want to encourage you and invite you to do is to listen again, right? To hear again the gospel, this good news, so that this wonderful message, this great message, this good news would not be something that our hearts become callous to, but that it would revive us, right? That if you're here this morning, and maybe if you've never heard this good news before, then maybe it would bring your heart to life. But then maybe if you're here this morning, and you've heard this, and you believe it, but it feels stale to you this morning, then maybe it would bring new life to you this morning. And so what the scripture says is this. It says that our God, our God is a good God, that he's a loving God, that he's infinite, and that he's almighty, and that he's all-knowing, and that he's all-powerful. He is a good God. He's a good father, even says. And what does this good God do? This good God creates this entire world. Everything that we see, he created it, and he created it to be good. You see, he created it to be good so that we would be able to enjoy it. Consider that for a moment. He considered this world, he created this world so that we would be able to enjoy this world. And he also created it good so that in looking at the world, we would actually be able to know who this good God is. That this world was supposed to reflect who God is when we look into it. You see, the reason why he created you and me is so that we would know him. You see, the reason why he created us is so that we would have relationship with this good and all-powerful and all-loving God, that we would be able to have relationship with him, intimacy with him. And so he created everything that he created so that in seeing the mountains, you would say, what a powerful God he is. And that in seeing all of creation, you would know what a great provider that he is. That all of the world was created for our good and so that he would be glorified, that we would be able to know him. But here's the thing. 
instead of living for him, and instead of responding to his love for us by loving him back, what we chose to do was to belittle him. We belittled his glory. You see, ever since the beginning, from the first man, ever since the beginning, each one of us, in one way or another, has believed that our way is actually better than God's way. Right? And so we have rejected his rule and his authority over our lives. And instead of trusting him and submitting to him and living for him and loving him above all things, we choose to love ourselves above him. And we choose to do our own things. And so we choose to do the very things that he tells us not to do. And we choose to not do the things that he tells us that we should be doing for our good. And so through our lives and through our words and through our thoughts and through our actions, time and time and time again, we have offended and belittled and sinned against this great and good and powerful God. But you see, this, this great God that we're talking about is not just some sort of pushover, right? He doesn't just kind of see what's going on. He doesn't see the offenses that we have brought against him. And he doesn't just respond by doing nothing, kind of throwing up his hands in the air and saying, I don't know what to do. Instead, the Bible says that our God is just and that he's right and that he's holy and that he takes sin seriously. And so when we sin against him, he doesn't just sweep up sin under the rug or he doesn't just overlook sin and pretend like it's not really as bad as it really is. Instead, a holy God demands that sin is punished. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death, that the consequence of sin is death. So because we have sinned against God, what the Bible says is that we actually... We actually should be dying. We should be put to death because of our sin. It says that we should actually be eternally separated from God because of our sin. That we actually should be in hell because of our sin. That the wrath of God should be poured upon us because we have offended this holy and right and good God by the way that we live. But you see, that's why the gospel... That's why the gospel is so beautiful and scandalous at the same time. You see, what it tells us is that God's love for us is so great. God's love for us is so great that even though we have belittled him in every single way, even though we have disobeyed him and offended him in every single way, that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That instead, he decides that he wants to spare us from death. Consider that. Consider that for a moment. Even for people who have been offended against, who have been sinned against, sinned against you know what that looks like. People who have offended you, sinned against you, and, and we are just mere human beings. You know how much it takes for us to be able to forgive or to be able to turn and say, I'm not going to give them what they deserve. Imagine what that's like for a holy God. But he says he wants to spare us from death. And so instead of putting us to death, he decides that he's going to send his son. His son in the flesh. And you see, his son is no ordinary son. Right? The, the scriptures say that, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were living in perfect relationship with one another. In perfect community with one another. 
right? And that God the Son is actually God, right? So that he's sinless in every way. And so that he came onto this earth and that he lived the life that we were supposed to live, right? And that he obeyed in the way that we were supposed to obey. obey, And and he did everything that we could not. And you see, and though Jesus was perfect and without sin, what does God decide to do? God undeservingly places the sin and the guilt of the entire world on his son. And instead of killing us who are actually deserving to die, God crushes his son instead, it says. And instead of pouring out on us the wrath that we deserve, that a holy God should pour out on those who are sinful, instead he pours out wrath on his son, killing him instead. You see, what the gospel tells us is this, that God killed his son, who had done nothing wrong. Hear that. He had done nothing wrong, so that you and I, who are sinful, who have done everything wrong, could be spared from punishment. And let me ask you, if God's love for us was so great that he was willing to crush his own son so that we wouldn't have to die, Doesn't it seem sort of silly for us to try to convince God that the reason why he should approve of us is because you read your Bible three times this week? Or that the reason why you should have good standing before God is because you didn't watch a rated R movie this week? It seems ridiculous, right? Consider what God has done so that we would be able to find approval before him, so that we could stand justified before him. He laid our sin upon his son, the one who had done nothing wrong. And for us to present these these insignificant things before God, hoping that 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 would somehow gain approval for him, what would that be like? It seems pretty ridiculous, right? Like somehow we're missing the point. Because I think God would say, listen, do you know how much I want to care about your justification? Do you know how much I care about it? Do you know how much I want for for you to be able to be found approved before me? Take a look at the cross. Take a look at the cross. Look at what I did to my son. I put on him what, what you deserved. He died so that you wouldn't have to. He died so that you can be found justified before me. And so he's saying, Don't come to me with these insignificant things hoping that what you do will somehow gain approval from me. Instead, stop trying to find approval from your work. Look at Jesus and the work that he has done and trust in that. Believe in what my son has done for your justification. Stop trying to work to gain something that you're not able to. I've done it all. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this, and this, if, what is the sinner's hope for being found approved before God? You see, the sinner's hope is not found in what the sinner does. Instead, it's found in trusting in what the Savior has done on the cross on your behalf. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. How do we find uh, approval before God? How can we stand justified before God? We trust in what Jesus has done. And the first thing he has done was to be delivered up for our trespasses. Let's move on to the second half of verse 25. It says this, Jesus, our Lord, was raised for our justification. 
Jesus our Lord was raised for our justification. You see, as we're sitting here this morning, right, and as we have just said once again the, the, the most fundamental thing about Christianity, the gospel, the, 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 the obvious thing that the, the scriptures are trying to tell us about who God is and what he has done, if we were to be honest, all of it, right, can sound a little bit just sort of too good to be true. Like it sounds good in theory, but you're, you're really having a hard time believing that it really can be that easy. And see, I think the reason for that is partly because we live in this world where the mantra is, you get what you deserve, right? That's sort of the, the mantra that we live by. Ever since we're little kids, we know that that's how the world operates, right? Whether it's our relationships or the schools that we go to or we grow up and, and we go to work, we know people respond to us based off of what we do. You get what you deserve. It's how the world operates. But what we're saying this morning about the gospel seems completely different than what we're used to. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, listen, if, if what you're telling me is true, then what, what that basically means is this, that even though I'm completely guilty of sinning against God, and even though I've offended this holy and powerful God, and a just God who is in holy in every single way, in numerous ways I've offended him, what you're saying to me is that instead of giving me what I deserve, God chooses to place my sin and my guilt on his son who has done nothing wrong. And that by simply believing in what Jesus has done for me, that I get to walk away unharmed and unpunished and not guilty. And I think some of us sitting here this morning are probably thinking, that just sounds way too easy, right? It's not reflective of the world, how the world operates. It sounds way too good to be true. How can I actually know that this is really true? Well, let me share an illustration with you this week, that, something that I heard this week that I think may be helpful to us in considering whether or not this is true. Imagine that you are one of six boys in your family right? You're one of six boys in your family. And, and one day, the five of you, five of you, are in the house, uh, and you're just in the house, and you're bored to death. You're just sitting there. You don't know what to do. And so you come up with a plan, and you plan that you're going to sneak out of the house and, and go and do something. And so five of you uh, sneak out of the house. You get onto, the bike, uh, get onto your bikes, and you start pedaling as fast as you can, right? All five of you are riding down the street, and you go to the, the local store, Okay, and so you throw your bikes onto the, in front of the store and you run into the store and you kind of walk uh, slowly and you go into this aisle that has a bunch of fireworks, right? And so you go into this aisle and you kind of sneak into this aisle, the five of you do, and you pick up as many fireworks as you can and you start stuffing your pockets. You stuff them into your pants, into your pockets, wherever you can fit them. You put all these fireworks in any uh, crevice that you can find. And then one of you goes into another area and, and, and picks up a bunch of, of matches and he puts it into his pocket as well. And all five of you look at each other and you zoom out of the store, right? You run out of the store, you get back onto your bikes and you just start pedaling as fast as you possibly can. You're trying to get away before somebody notices or somebody sees. And so you're riding and riding and riding and you ride all the way back to your house again. And you get there and you just start cracking up, giggling, considering what you have just done. You throw your bikes onto the ground and then you go onto your driveway and you're getting ready to get started, right? And so you pull out all your fireworks and your matches and you just start lighting things on fire. 
Now, the five of you are not the smartest of kids in the world, right? Because you completely forget that your parents are actually in the house, right? And so you're, you're out there, and you're pulling out fireworks, and you're lighting matches, and you're setting things on fire, and all of a sudden, your parents begin to hear all sorts of explosions happening outside of their house, right? And so they're coming down to figure out what's going on. Now, remember, uh, you just stole fireworks, right? You're playing with fire. You stole matches, and you're exploding things in the driveway. And so the moment that you see your parents, you know you're going to be in huge trouble, right? Have you ever felt that way before? Like when you see somebody that you know is about to yell at you, you're kind of, your mind just starts thinking about all the different things that you want to be able to say to them, like how you're going to explain how this happened, what you're going to possibly say. And so you're standing there, you see your parents, they see you, and your mind's racing, trying to figure out what are you going to say. And as you're standing there looking at them, them looking at you, your brother, the sixth brother, comes down from upstairs. He comes down from upstairs. He was in his room. He was completely unaware of what the rest of you had done. But he comes down, and he comes outside, and he looks, and he sees all this fireworks and explosion that happened in the driveway. And he goes up to your parents, and he begins talking to them. And you sort of quiet down to hear what they're saying, and you're blown away because it turns out that your brother is actually coming to your defense, okay? He tells your parents that he will take punishment for what the five of you have done. And you're standing there like, what in the world is going on here? Why is he doing this? What is he doing, right? And he's saying that he's going to take punishment even though he had done nothing wrong, even though he had no part in this crime, that he is going to take punishment for what his brothers have done. And what's more amazing is that your parents decide that this is a good idea, right? So they hear what your brother has to say, and they say, okay, let's do this. I think it's a good idea. And so they take your brother, and they walk into the house, and they walk him up the stairs and take him back into the room, and they close the door. And so the five of you look at each other, and you got to figure out what is going on here. And so you run back into the house, and maybe you go up, and you have your ears to the, to the door, to the wall, to figure out what's going on. Well, you're hearing, and you're listening, and you find out that they're beginning to punish your brother. And so they're talking really loud, and there, there's some yelling that's going on, and, and you hear uh, that your brother begins crying. He's, he's crying. He's taking this punishment for something that he didn't do. And, and maybe there's an extended period of silence after that for a while. And, and you're trying to listen as hard as you can, but you don't really hear anything. But you know that as what's going on in that room at that point is that they're punishing the innocent for what the guilty have done. Right? But here's the thing. As you're standing there listening, a, as long as your brother is in the room you're really not sure if this whole thing is going to work, right? You're not really sure if this whole thing will pan out in the way that you expect. I mean, will this switch really do the trick, right? Will justice really be satisfied by punishing your brother for something that you have done? Are you really going to be in the clear here, or have your parents kind of gone crazy for a second, right? You're not really sure what is going on. And that's when the door opens. You see, the door opens and your brother comes out. And when your brother emerges, he walks over to his parents, and he embraces them, and they embrace him. And there's love shown to one another. There's affection shown to one another. There's no anger in anybody's face. There's no, uh, there's no rejection in anyone's face. They're embracing one another. And in that moment, in that moment, you know that actually everything is okay, 
and you begin to rejoice in what you're seeing because you know that the penalty for your sin, for your disobedience, has been paid for. Because you see, the brother's empty room, the brother's empty room guarantees you that a full payment for your sins have been made. The brother's empty room does. The fact that he's not in there any longer guarantees for you that a full payment for your sins have been made, that there's no more punishment that is necessary, that your brother has taken upon himself the full punishment for your sins. Well, brothers and sisters, the empty tomb tells us exactly the same thing. The empty tomb tells us that there is no more punishment that is needed that God has accepted what Jesus has done on your behalf as full payment for what you have done. The innocent has, in fact, taken on the punishment of the guilty, and there isn't a God standing there looking at you with some type of uh, rejection or some type of disapproval. He stands rejoicing in what his, his son has done for you. The empty tomb is a guarantee for you that you have, in fact, been forgiven of what you have done. You see, when we began this series about 10 weeks ago, we started by explaining that the resurrection was actually an actual event that happened in history, right? That there was a real Jesus who really lived, right? Who really lived a perfect life here on earth. And that real Jesus was really put to death. And that really uh, good Jesus who was put to death and was now in a tomb where he really spent three days And that Jesus who was put in a tomb for three days, that he was really raised from the dead. That even now we can go and find an empty tomb where our Savior once laid, that he's no longer there. You see, the certainty of the empty tomb tells us that that God has really accepted Jesus' death as the full payment for our sins. It's really real. It's really true. You see, we're not making up some kind of fictional story here. A real Jesus really died and was really raised so that you can really be forgiven of your sins. And a really empty tomb tells you that it's true. Listen to what one preacher says about how important the resurrection is to our justification. He says this. He says, if it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are yet in your sins. It matters that much. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. Do you know what that means? That means Winston. Your sins have been forgiven. All of it. Your guilt has been removed. You stand justified before God. How do you know? Because there's an empty tomb. It means, Brett, your sins have been forgiven, all of it. Your guilt has been removed. You stand justified before God. How do you know? Because of the empty tomb. What's our hope for being found approved before God? It's found in the empty tomb. It guarantees you that you're really forgiven, that God has really accepted Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, that there's nothing else that you need to do to pay for your sins. Jesus paid it all. He has done it all. And so if this is true, 
if Jesus' death and resurrection is the basis for our justification, for our approval before God, then how does this affect the way that we live? How does it affect day-to-day life? We'll look at verse 24 and consider quickly two ways that this truth affects the way that we live. Verse 24 says this, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. The first point, the first thought that we need to consider and the first thing that we need to believe to live differently is this, that you and I, that we live by a new mantra, right? We no longer live by you get what you deserve. Instead, the new mantra that we live by is that Jesus gives me what I don't deserve. Jesus gives me what I don't deserve. Look at verse 24. It it begins by saying, it will be counted to us. What will be counted to us? You see, if we read this verse in context, if we consider the verses that went before it, we realize that Paul is talking about righteousness. He's basically saying, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him. What is Paul talking about? He's essentially talking about this thing called the great exchange, right? Paul talks about it a lot in the scriptures, but there's one particular verse that helps us to understand what this great exchange is all about. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is what he says. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying God made him. Who's him? Jesus. God made him who knew no sin. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was sinless in every way. He was obedient in every way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. What did we just say? We said that the sin and the guilt of the entire world was placed upon this sinless Jesus. And in exchange, what do we get? The scriptures say that we who are sinful in every way, who have disobeyed in every way, that what we receive is actually the righteousness of God. That the righteousness of Jesus covers us. In other words, my sin and your sin goes to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness comes to me. You see, God is so good to us that he doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He doesn't just declare us as being not guilty. He also takes sinful people like you and me and declares us to be righteous. Consider that for a moment. It's, It's like cheating on a test and getting caught, right? It would be one thing for your teacher to forgive you and say, you know what, I'm not going to put you in detention. I'm not going to call your parents. I forgive you for what you have done. But it would be an absolutely different thing for your teacher to respond and say, not only do I forgive you, not only are you not going to detention, not only am I not going to call your parents, I'm actually going to give you a perfect score as though you have done all the work, as though you have Uh, completed this test perfectly as you should, and so there's going to be a hundred on the top of that page. That seems outrageous to us, right? Everyone sitting here would know that that kid got what he didn't deserve. Well, your story and my story is exactly the same. You see, you and I come with our sin and our guilt, and Jesus comes with his perfection and his innocence. And even though everything that we have done should have led us to punishment, Instead, Jesus gives us forgiveness, and he declares us righteous on top of that. And what does Jesus leave with? Jesus leaves with the sin and the guilt of the world on his shoulders, sentenced to die 
die the death of a sinner. God invites us to participate in this great exchange. The question is, how do you do that? How do you participate in this great exchange? Notice that nowhere in verse 24 do you find the word work. Right? Nowhere does it say, it will be counted to us who work. It doesn't say that. No, instead it says, it will be counted to us who believe. We get to participate in this great exchange by doing nothing else but believing. I sort of feel like we need to get this like tattooed onto our arm or written onto our, our heads because it's so easy for us to forget this truth. Because the mantra that Christians can sometimes live by is that you get what you deserve. But what Jesus is telling us this morning is that we have a new mantra to live by. That Jesus gives me what I don't deserve. And that leads us quickly to point number two. It says, when you struggle, right? When you struggle to believe that God really does approve of you in this way, what God is inviting us to do this morning is to look at the empty tomb. When you struggle to believe, he's inviting you this morning to look at the empty tomb. You see, if we're being honest, right, there's some of us who are sitting here this morning who are struggling to believe any of this. And maybe there's some of you who are sitting here and you've trusted in Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus, but you've been so distant from him, right? Recently, you've been so distant that it's been forever since you really have felt God in any, any real way. You haven't experienced him. It almost feels like he's not even there. You're wondering if he has given up on you. Or, or maybe there's some of you who are sitting here this morning who have been uh, fighting and dealing and struggling with a particular sin in your life, right? This, this sin that keeps popping up and you're constantly trying to fight but you find yourself giving in time and time again and you're sitting here this morning just sort of overcome with guilt you're sort of even afraid of what it is that God thinks about you you're wondering how many more times will God put up with this or maybe you're here this morning and you're tired of trying to live an impressive life you're constantly finding yourself trying to do good things in order that God would be able to approve of you and it's exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live because you're not sure if you've ever done enough. You live constantly with this uncertainty of not knowing whether or not God is looking down at you and he's approving of you or that he's disappointed with you. You never know. You're just constantly working. You see, if any of this describes you, I think God wants you to hear some good news this morning. When you struggle to believe that God approves of you, he wants you to look at the empty tomb. He wants you to know that your sins are really forgiven, all of it, that your guilt has been removed, that you don't have to live a life trying to impress God because Jesus has been impressive enough for you. God loves you. He forgives you, and the empty tomb is your guarantee. I want to close this morning by reading a quote by a man named Reuben Torrey. This is what he said. He said, when Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. When he rose, he rose as my representative, and I arose in him. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that full payment has been made for my sins. I look at the empty tomb and the risen ascended Lord, and I know that the payment has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. 
My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the payment that covers them is as high as heaven's. My sin may have been as deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the payment that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. Brothers and sisters, there's great news for you this morning. We don't walk out of here depressed, wondering what it is that we're going to do, but that's the point. God has done it all. Jesus, who died and the one that was resurrected, you are able to stand justified before God because of what Jesus has done. You are approved by him. You are no longer identified by your guilt or your shame or your sin any longer. Instead, when God looks at you, he sees the the righteousness of his son covering you. He doesn't see a sinner when he sees you. He sees someone who is righteous, someone who has been forgiven. And so you no longer have to work for approval. Your work will never be good enough. Instead, Jesus invites you to come and to trust in his work on your behalf. That on the cross, Jesus was delivered up so that your sins can be forgiven. And that the empty tomb is the guarantee that you are forever approved by God. Let's pray.